The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning I want to go back to the book of Job, and we want to begin in the second chapter and read a little bit. You may recall that in the first chapter we learned that Satan had taken everything that Job had, all his stuff, he destroyed it, and he took his sons and his daughters, he had them, uh, they were killed, they were slain, and in the second chapter we're going to read about another assault of Satan that comes upon him. So let's read there first and then we'll come back and we'll, uh, uh, we'll pick up on some thoughts here. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, just as a reminder, this is not heaven. This is not, Satan does not have access to heaven. There's nothing in heaven that can defile. There's nothing in heaven that is sin-cursed or sinful. This is not Satan coming before God with a bunch of angels. This is uh, this is these sons of God are men. These sons of God are, are, are men and women in a worship service that have come together to present themselves before the Lord. And here we see God is present in the worship service, but also Satan is present. We've kind of covered that already, but let me just remind you that that's the case every time we meet. There is, there is the Lord is here, we trust. He, Jesus said, where there's two or three gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. But the devil has access here as well. And if he himself is not here, at least some of his minions are. They're always looking for ways to get us. And, in, and the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord he, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Okay, now Satan here is active. That, that's another point we've already made, but I want to remind you, don't think your enemy is complacent. He is not lazy. The devil is more uh, diligent than most of us, let me tell you. He's always, he's going to and fro in the earth. He's walking up and down in it. We're told he's like a lion seeking, roaming about, seeking whom he may desire. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but, but keep that in mind, what God says about Job. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life, but put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face." And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Now, now I, don't want to, I want to continue reading in just a minute, but I want to point out a couple of things here. You may remember that we said when we started this series on Job that there are at least three themes that we see here. Patience, pride, and pity. Patience, pride, and pity. James 5 and verse 11 says, uh, you've heard of the patience of Job. And patience doesn't mean, uh, you know, standing in line at Disney World, okay? <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Uh, standing in line at Disney World is, is torture, not patience. No, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not the same kind of thing. It's the keeping on, keeping on. It's enduring. We'll, we'll mention that in a minute, hopefully. It's endurance. It's perseverance, okay? It's, it's, it's 
staying the course. It's, it's not sitting down and doing nothing. It's continuing to move forward, continuing to, in the face of adversity, continuing to do the things that God wants you to do. Patience. Pride is also a thing. We're, we're not going to get too much into that on the bad side, but on the good side, what I read here, you know, people want to accuse God of so many things that he's not doing. They want to accuse him here in Job of being capricious, of being arbitrary, of being mean, mean-spirited, pointing out Job in an effort to get Job, uh, get Satan to attack him. You know what God's, you know why God's pointing out Job? He's proud of Job. He said, have you considered him? Look how, look how good he is living. Now, now understand, when it says he's perfect and upright, doesn't mean he's sinlessly perfect. We've already covered that. I, I don't want to go back and replow that ground this morning. But just remember, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's actually talking about a perfection that we can aspire to attain. We can be like Job. Did you know that? We can be, it, it, is, it is possible. We see it here. It's possible for the Lord to look down here in Zion community or Gordo community or wherever you're from and, and say to Satan or to someone else, have you considered my servant so-and-so? He's, he's perfect and he's upright. Back in chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, there is none like him in the earth. Job, according to God's own testimony, was living more righteously than anybody else in the world. Did that make him sinlessly perfect? Absolutely not. Because you're going to continue reading in Job, and you're going to find that Job asks a question, can, can someone bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? No way. <laughs> Job understood he was a sinner, and he, and he failed miserably by the standard of Christ, by the standard of righteousness that he was supposed to measure up to but yet in comparison and by the way we're not to compare ourselves among ourselves that's not wise but God can do it <laughs> God's able to do it he he looked down and in comparison to those around him Job was doing better than anybody else he wasn't you know some perfect person but he was doing better than anybody God was proud of him but God was saying you consider my servant Job he, you hear nothing do you detect anything in these passages anything at all angry or mean or arbitrary about what God's saying to Job. No. No. You know, James 5.11, just keep this in mind as we study the book of Job. Don't ever forget James 5 and verse 11. He said, you've heard of the patience of Job and you have seen the end of the Lord. Now, what's the end of the Lord? Many people who read Job say, oh yeah, God's so mean and he's so, uh, uh, he's just doing things to Job that, that we can't understand. No, we can understand them. Because what he's doing is not what people think he's doing. <laughs> the end of the Lord is that he is pitiful and of tender mercies. If you read Job and get anything out of that about God other than that he is pitiful, he is full of pity, and he is of tender mercies, you miss the point of Job, okay? Pride of God. Now, there's also a, we're going to get to this, Lord willing, there's also some pride in here that's not a good thing. There's the pride of Job and all of his companions shared in that pride they were self-righteous you know job in the first two chapters we read about job's response and it's the right response but as you continue reading throughout the book of job remember beginning in chapter 3 and all the way down to chapter 37 we're reading 
uh, things that people are saying. Job is speaking, Eliphaz is speaking, Bildad is speaking in one several chapters, and Zophar is speaking, and so is Elihu, uh, all the way down to chapter 37. And they get some things right, but they get a lot of things wrong. And the things they get right, they misapply. <laughs> God is just. God does recompense. But they, they have this idea that, that the way you can tell if God is favoring you is if he's blessing you materially and he's giving you all these visible blessings. You know, that doesn't have anything to do. God does bless us. Every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights. But they missed it. That The pride that is inherent in that day, it's inherent in, it's in, it's, it's in every one of them, okay? Now, now, let me just step aside from the main thrust of the message for just a minute and say, I kind of understand, I understand why. You know, you, you, you can't forget that in Job's day, they had nothing written down about God. They hadn't, they didn't, Job, according to historians, was written before any other book of the Bible was written, Job probably lived between the time of Abraham and the time, or between the time of Noah and the time of Abraham. That's probably when he lived. And the book of Job was penned before the books of Moses were penned. Now, Job obviously occurs after the creation, so it doesn't deal with the oldest things in the, in the world. Genesis deals with that, but Moses wrote those books later. So when Job is experiencing all this that he's experiencing, he doesn't have the book of 1 Peter. He doesn't have the book of James. He doesn't have the book of Romans. He doesn't have these other scriptures. He doesn't even have the books of Moses to look to. So they're, they're having these encounters with God and they're experiencing the problems of the world and they don't have a written guide. Aren't we so much more blessed? Aren't we blessed? That in the midst, look at the troubles and trials we're experiencing today. It's overthrowing the faith of some. It's overthrowing the faith of some of God's children. It's, it's confusing and confounding them. But beloved, it shouldn't because we have the written word to explain to us what's going on. And you remember what I said when we started this series? If you misunderstand the book of Job, you're liable to misunderstand the very nature of God. And so it's important that we figure out what's going on here. So the devil has come back into the presence of the Lord and he said, yeah, 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 sure, sure, Lord. I know he's still serving you, but you didn't touch his body. You didn't make him sick. <laughs> Boy, I get that. <laughs> I get aggravated. I get upset. I get down and out when I lose stuff. I, I'm glad Sherry's going to leave here in a minute to go get the food because I don't want her. Don't ask her how big a baby I am when I'm sick, okay? I've experienced a little sickness this week and... My goodness, I told her when I was finally better, Brother Mackey, I don't know why you stay with me. I'd leave me in a heartbeat if it was me, but uh, big a baby as I can be. I'm a terrible patient. So what happens here? Satan says, you let me touch his body. You let me afflict him personally, and it'll, it'll, it'll change things. Isn't that just like Satan? His very name means, the, the, the name devil, the word devil in the New Testament means slanderer. You know what he's doing to you, child of God? He's slandering you before God. Every day he's slandering you. And when you slander your brother or sister, you're acting like the devil. That's why backbiting and gossip are wrong and sinful because it's so destructive. The devil is trying to destroy Job and he's accusing God of bribing him. He said, you let me get hit. Now, again, 
Remember what he said to him. He said, you touch him, Lord, verse 5. You touch him and he'll curse you to his face. And just like he did in the first chapter, God didn't take the bait. Notice what's happening here. He is, you know, we got to understand the role of God and the role of Satan. Remember in the first chapter he said, Lord, you touch all he's got. The Lord didn't take the bait. That's what people think happened. People think God touched Job's life and his stuff and, and destroyed it. But notice what happened. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. In other words, Nuh-uh, devil, you're not going to make me act in, in opposition to my own nature. I'm not the afflictor of the brethren. I'm not the one who slanders and accuses and destroys. I'm not the roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. You are that character. I'm going to stick to my nature and my role. I am the keeper of the hedge. Now, sometimes God lowers the hedge. Sometimes he raises the hedge. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But God never is the afflictor in the way that Satan is here. So, verse 7, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a pot shard to scrape himself withal and sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Flip back to chapter 1 and verse 21. Notice what Job said initially when the first afflictions came. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In other words, what Job said was absolutely correct. And you notice he didn't charge God with any of it. You say, well, didn't he say the Lord gave and the Lord had taken away? The Lord gave me this stuff. He took this stuff away. That's not what he's talking about. What did the Lord give Job? The Lord gave him the hedge. And the Lord took away the hedge. He didn't, he didn't afflict him. He didn't proactively, if you will, reach down and do this. In, chapter, in this chapter 2 verse here, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord? And sh this is the way most people read it. Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil at the hand of God? But you notice that's not what it says. It says, shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Period. Notice he's not charging that the evil came from God. So let's talk about that. We're, what about suffering? What about, we're all engaged in some measure of suffering in our lives. Maybe it's you personally. Maybe it's your loved one. Maybe it's your family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it has to do not with health but with your wealth. Maybe it has to do with your job. Maybe it has to do with your relationships. Maybe it has to do with your marriage or your friendships or your, your, peer, your peer group or something there in the world. Where, what about suffering? Let's talk about that for the time we have. Where does suffering come from? Where does suffering come from? Well, I want to, I want to take us through some general, general principles from the Bible, and then hopefully we'll have time to bring it back home to the book of Job here in a few minutes. Suffering, where does it come from? Well, suffering often results from the sin that is around us. 
And ultimately, you can point the finger as to suffering to the Garden of Eden, to the place where Adam first ate of the, of the fruit. We're not going to read about that account, but what we're going to do is we're going to read about the results of what happened. Notice in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. You remember now, God made everything good, and then when he made man, he called it very good. But after the fall of man, suffering entered. Verse 16, under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Notice that the result of the sin curse that is now, now upon the world is that childbearing will be painful and there's a need for a hierarchy in marriage there's a need now you know there wasn't any need for anybody to be under the authority of anyone else when Adam and Eve were in the garden and under the direct authority of God you didn't need a government you didn't need a home you didn't need any the home was created but you didn't need God to sit down and spell out the problems because there weren't any problems (laughs) my goodness they were naked and they didn't even know it They didn't even understand the problems that could arise from that, that eventually did arise from nakedness. And eventually the problems that would occur. I'm not, please don't anybody raise your hand to this question because I don't want to call you a liar here. How many of you got a perfect marriage? (laughs) How many of you that are married have a perfect marriage? Don't be raising your hand. I know you're lying if you tell me that. (laughs) Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. They had a perfect situation. There There was no conflict. There was no need for any type of authority to resolve any conflict. And then then you notice Adam and Eve, and it's primarily Adam, by the way. We always like to blame Eve. But remember, Eve was deceived. Adam was not. He knew exactly what he was doing, Brother Mackey. And after that, there had to be authority set up for resolution of conflicts in this life. And then unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and it's eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Notice what happened. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat thy bread. Till thou return to the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The ground is cursed. Hard work has become a fact of life, and ultimately death is universal because of the curse of the sin of Adam, because of the fall. One of the best summaries, I guess you could call it, of the the fall and and the results of it are found in Romans, the 8th chapter. Over in Romans chapter 8, notice what it says in verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. You don't think this whole creation is groaning? Turn on the weather report. Look at the hurricanes that are hitting the Gulf. Listen to the earthquakes. Listen to hear about the earthquakes that are occurring worldwide. Uh, You know, all the problems that's happening in this world is the creation groaning and travailing in pain together until now. And not only they, not only the world around us, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we as children of God, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. 
I'll come back to that last part, but what I want you to see here is that we're groaning. We're groaning because of the curse of sin that is around us. Suffering often is a result of the sin that's around us. But listen, suffering sometimes is a result of the sin that is within us. I'm sorry to say too often in my case. Keep your finger in Romans, but you might turn over to Isaiah, the first chapter. And listen to what God says about how our actions can affect, how our, the way we live can affect whether we suffer or not. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 19. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. That sounds good, doesn't it? If you do right, the Lord will bless you. But notice this, but if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That don't sound real good to me. I've been watching some shows lately that have to do with knights fighting with swords and all that. I believe I'd rather be shot than stabbed with a sword. You know what? I just can't even, th- I, I see some of the, ugh, it, just, it just gives me, you know, the heebie-jeebies to think about being stabbed with a sword. Uh, and um, but notice here if ye refuse and rebel ye shall be devoured with the sword now notice I don't, want us, I don't want us to get the wrong impression it's not a one for one thing please remember that there's mercy there's grace sometimes when we do wrong and we ought to be devoured with the sword the Lord gives us mercy and doesn't allow us to be and sometimes, as we see here, and we're getting to that, in the book of Job, it's not something we've done that, that causes suffering to come upon us. But you rest assured this, the Lord chastens his children. The Lord chastens us. We'll come back to that, Lord willing, but the Lord chastens us. You know, over in, uh, back in Romans, the seventh chapter, uh, I, I'm not going to read but one verse there, but notice if you read that whole chapter, Paul is talking about the sin that is within him, the curse of sin that is within him. And he says in verse 14, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. He said, For that which I do I allow not, that w- for what I would do that I do not, but what I hate that I do. And he goes on to say in verse 18, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And ultimately he exclaims, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Their suffering sometimes results from the sin that's within us. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, The Lord chastens us. I have experienced the chastening of God. I'm sure you have too. And let me just also say this about that. If you have any spiritual sense about you at all, in other words, if if you are born again and you seek the Lord's guidance on whether what you're experiencing is his chastening or if it's something else if it's his chastening he'll tell you you know my daddy never spanked me over something he didn't tell me why (laughs) he never just grabbed me up and started wailing away on me I said daddy why he said don't worry about it you know he never did that he always told me our father in heaven is a better father than even my father ever would be He will not chasten us without telling us. Every time I've ever experienced the chastening of God, when I sought unto God, I knew what it was. I knew what it was. And you will too. Suffering sometimes results from the sin that's within us. But but here's the kicker, guys. 
Here's the kicker. Suffering sometimes results from Satan's assaults. Sometimes suffering results from Satan's assaults. And here is where we find Job. Remember what I said? Satan tried to tempt God to afflict Job, but God declined, as he always does. Now, God is active in his chastening of his children, but when it comes to the assaults of Satan, God is not with Satan on this. God is not helping him out. He is not. So let's, let's turn to one other issue here before we move on to what I really want to get to. We see where suffering comes from. What does suffering do to us? What does suffering do to us? Well, I want to I deal with the negative first. <laughs> suffering does not work together for our good in general, okay? Suffering does not work together for our good. Romans 8.28 is almost universally misunderstood by the world. What does it say? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Well, I guess that means that when the drunk driver gets in the car and he drives down the wrong side of the interstate and he hits and kills a family, that works for their good somehow. <laughs> no, it doesn't. COVID is not working for your good, child of God. You ask somebody who's been through it. Oh, wasn't that a, that was good for you, right? No, it was not good. Sin does not work for our good. The world would have us believe that God and Satan are working hand in hand, that Satan is a tool that God uses to afflict his children. That is not true, beloved. That is not true. The wicked sins of men, the wicked actions of Satan do not work together for your good. The word Work together. The phrase work together in Romans 8.28 comes from a Greek word, sunergo. Sunergo. Which literally means to be a fellow worker or to cooperate or to help or be a partner in labor or to be a co-worker. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Are God and Satan co-workers? The very name Satan means adversary. The very name, you know, my adversary is not cooperating with me. You know, if I, if I said Brother Buddy is my adversary, I wouldn't be saying it, well, Brother Buddy's my adversary. We're working together. You'd think I was crazy. If I, if I said Brother Buddy's my adversary, I'd probably do it with gritted teeth. Brother Buddy's my adversary. You know, that'd be the way I'd have. That's what happens when we have an adversary. They're working against us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that the devil is, the adversary is out there uh, uh, seeking whom he may devour. <laughs> He's roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. The opponent is not working with God for you. He's working against God and against you. So let me ask you another question. Does sin work together with the righteousness of God? Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Speaking of God, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. Now, now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean he doesn't see what's happening. And he doesn't know what's going on. But what it means is he's not going to touch it. He's not going to be sullied by sin. He's not going to, the only time that God himself was ever sullied with sin 
It's when Jesus Christ became sin for us on the cross and God the Father turned His back upon His Son and there was a break in the fellowship because God hates sin so much He will not look upon it. He will not work with it. You see, that's how much God hates sin. We're told in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Some say, well, the Lord brought this temptation upon me. You know what James says about that? Let me just make it clear. In James chapter 1 and verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. We're talking about somebody like Job here, right? For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So there's some there's some endurance, there's some good things about enduring temptation, but notice the temptation where it comes from. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God is not touching evil. God is not touching sin. How do we get tempted? Well, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin bringeth forth death. You see, does sin work together with God and His righteousness? Absolutely not. Well, maybe does the flesh work together with the Spirit? <laughs> you know what it tells us in Galatians 5, 17? The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. When I, I've told you this before, but you know, when my mom or daddy or my wife even says, you're really being contrary today, they're not bragging on me. <laughs> They're telling me I'm not working together very well with them. I'm going against the grain. I'm going contrary to what I ought to be doing. Righteousness, and I won't go any further, but look in 2 Corinthians 6 sometime. Righteousness has no fellowship with unrighteousness. Therefore, they cannot work together. That's not what that means. In every verse on the issue in the scriptures, evil and good are juxtaposed against one another. We're told in Amos, hate the evil and love the good. We're told in Isaiah, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. That's what people are doing in the world today. They say, well, that was an evil thing, but it's working together for your good. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's against you. We've heard of so many dying of this pandemic. It's not working for our good. It's against us. It's against us. So what does that mean, you say, preacher? Well, again, if we have time, I'm going to come back to it. But you remember the song we sang as, a, as an opening hymn, All Things? You know what it's talking about there? All things work together for good. What things? He goes on to tell us in Romans 8, 29, For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. Whom He called, them He also justified. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. What should we then say to these things? I hope you say hallelujah. Because <laughs> that's what we need to be saying. See, that's the things that are working for us. God is working those things for us. There are many things working against us. So what does suffering do for us? Well, it does work or exercise our faith and our patience. In James chapter 1, James tells us a little bit about that. Chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. 
The word worketh there means to exercise it, okay? It means to, to, to work it in the sense like a muscle. Now, let me ask you a question. You know, people often say, don't pray for patience. God will send you tribulation. Well, God's not sending tribulation primarily. What is he talking about then when he says tribulation worketh patience over in Romans chapter 5? Well, when Mason goes down to the box, y'all know he's into all this exercise. He's, tr he's trying to stay in shape. I try to tell him round is a shape. He gets on to me about that. Anyway, we'll, that's an argument he and I have. But, uh, but if Mason goes down to work out to build up his muscles, not to get muscles. If he didn't already have a bicep, he couldn't work it. He couldn't exercise it if he didn't already have it. We're not, you know, some people try to get you to work it up within you, work up faith within you, work up patience within you, but you've got to already have it. And by the way, the way we get it is in the new birth. We get faith. We all get a measure of faith in the new birth. The reason some of us are more, I say us, some of you are more faithful. The reason some people are more faithful than others is they've exercised it more. You can let it atrophy. You know, if I never worked, never moved my legs or arms, they could atrophy and they'd be almost worthless. That's what happens to your faith if you don't exercise it. But notice here, you work, you work your faith and that exercise is patience in the midst of tribulations and trials. And by the way, sometimes I think people today, and I'm this way, I'm not, when I say people, I'm talking about myself. I mean, have you, have, you been, have you been just astounded and shocked by what's going on in the world? I have at times. But you know what, you know what Peter says about that in 1 Peter 4, 12? He said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice. Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. In other words, don't be shocked. We hear about these. You know, I was down at church last weekend with Brother Mike Ivey. And during the prayer request service, I, I, there was eight or ten people spoke up. And of those eight or ten, at least seven or eight of them were talking about some friend of theirs or family member that had died of COVID. Be, be in prayer for this one who died, that one who died, this one who's at the point of death. And it's shocking to those of us that have not experienced that. But let me tell you, beloved, it ought not shock us. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. This is to try you as, as though some strange thing has occurred. Jesus told us in John 16 and 33, in the world you shall have tribulations. But he also said something that, that, that is important. He said, but be not afraid. I have overcome the world. Patience is worked by suffering, but also sometimes suffering chastens and corrects us. Chastens and corrects us. This is part of the reason, I believe, that God lowered the hedge around Job. Job was prideful, as were his friends, as we've already discussed. And we'll come back to that, Lord willing, in a future message. But, but Job was prideful. And one of the reasons God, even though as great as he was, he still had some self-righteousness that needed to be dealt with. And so why did God lower the hedge? I believe it was a way to teach Job. It was a way to chasten him for his self-righteousness. The Israelites in the wilderness were chastened. Read Deuteronomy 8 sometime. The, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that we should endure chastening because if we're not, then we're bastards and not sons. 
if, if the, Lord, the Lord loves His children and those whom He loves, He chastens. Oftentimes, suffering chastens us. Now, as we bring this message to a close, in the midst of suffering, how does God play a role? What is God's role? How does He help us? I've said already He's not the afflictor. He's the helper. He's not the afflictor of the brethren. He's not the accuser of the brethren. He's the keeper of the hedge. How does God help us in suffering? Well, for one thing, he always sees us wherever we are. You may think you're abandoned, and you may be abandoned by all of your friends, by all of your family. You may see yourself as alone and without any friends or help in the world. But you remember when the children, the disciples were told to, to go into the boat and to cross the Sea of Galilee there to the other side and Jesus stayed on the land and he was praying there alone on the land. He was not with them in the boat and they were toiling and rowing because a big storm had come up. You remember these storms we've had the last few days? It diminishes the visibility. Nobody can see what's hardly out in front of their face when it's a bad storm like that. And they were in the midst of the storm and guess what? Mark 6:48 says, "He saw them." He saw them toiling and rowing. You remember when we did the, we went through the book of Mark, there were three instances. There was one instance where Jesus got there too late to heal that little girl of Jairus. She had already died. There was one instance where Jesus was asleep on the boat of the disciples. You remember that? <laughs> and, and there was no way he could help. He clearly didn't care, right? And then there was this instance where Jesus wasn't even with them. And you remember in every instance where he was getting there too late, we found out he was really right on time. When he was asleep on the boat, we found out that he really wasn't. <laughs> he was physically asleep, but he was right there to help them. And here where he wasn't there at all. He saw him in the midst of the trials, and you know what he did? He walked on the very thing they were most afraid of to get there, the water. They were afraid of drowning, right? You know, the, the world says, here's what you do if you're afraid of the water. You either sink or swim. You can drown or you can swim. Learn to swim. If you swam, swam lately, <laughs> uh, Mason, I'm picking on him this morning because he's not here. Mason had to learn to swim to participate in one of those competitions. And he was telling me when he got back how tired he was. You know, there's nothing that will tire you out worse than swimming. I've been there. That's why I don't swim now. <laughs> if you're in the midst of a storm on the sea and you're in the water, what's going to happen? There's no way you're going to survive without a life vest, right? But these, these disciples didn't know what that was. And the thing they were most afraid of, you know what Jesus did? He walked right through the water, right on top of it. And when you're with Jesus, you can walk on the top of the water too. When you've got your eyes on him, that's what Peter did. And when he got to looking at the wind and the waves, he sank. See, that's the better option <laughs> is to walk on the top with him. He's always sees us. He's always with us. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. You read Isaiah 43, the first five verses sometime, and you'll see there's no place where he is not. He is always with us. And praise God, he will everlastingly keep us. See, that's what Romans 8.28 is all about. Romans 8.28, the comfort we take from that is not, you know, the puzzled fog of thinking, well, God's doing something here, I'll never figure it out. No, it's the 
It's the absolute clarity of knowing what God is doing, which is He is ultimately saving us for eternity. In fact, He has already done it, and He puts all of those things in the past tense. Whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. Whom He predestinated, them He also uh, justified. Whom He justified, them He also glorified. Isn't that glorious? That he's, not, he's put them all in the past tense, including the future glorification. As far as God's concerned, we're already glorified in His mind. It's so certain to happen that it's already happened in His mind. You know, it's so certain to happen that we can already rely on it. And I want you to go back. We don't have time this morning. I want you to go back and I want you to read John 16, 33. He said, in the world you have tribulations. But what did He say? Be not afraid. I've overcome the world. How do you overcome the world? Through His resurrection. Go back and read 1 Peter 4 and verses 12 and 13 where he says, Be not, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial you're to be tried with. He said, But rejoice that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. What's he pointing us to? The resurrection. James 5 and verses 7 through 11 that ends up with that glorious thing about the end of the Lord. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about patience. And he says, You've seen the end of the Lord. What's the end of the Lord ultimately? It's the resurrection of all of his children. So what about Job? Let's finish up here. What about Job? He never falsely accused God, at least not in these two chapters. He gets a little off a little later on. But, but I want you to remember what seemed to comfort Job the most. What seemed to comfort him the most. Over in the 19th chapter, we've quoted it many times, but we're going to close out with reading it this morning. In the 19th chapter of Job, after his friends have accused him of having secret sins and have accused him of being a great sinner and accused him and tried to comfort him, but in so miserable ways, some miserable ways. He goes on to say in 19, he said, I may have erred. I'm sure there's something I've done wrong, but look at verse 23. Notice what seems to bring Job the most comfort of all. He says, oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. What is he about to tell us? Something important. Is he about to tell us how we ought to act in order for the Lord to bless us? Is he about to tell us how we ought to confess some secret sin in order for the Lord's hand to come off us? Is he about to tell us how God works everything for good to them that love him? No! Not in the sense that the world believes it at least. He says, here's my comfort. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body. You know, Job's suffering in this body. He sees his body deteriorating. He sees his body declining. The boils are horrible upon his body. He's scraping away parts of his body every day. And he says, though after my body is destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. You know, child of God, if Job could have that hope with no access to the Word of God that we have today, how much hope ought we have? When the storms of life pounding on your little house, when everything's falling apart, it seems. When nobody cares for your soul, you just remember, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies.
And he loves you with an everlasting love and has drawn you with cords of kindness and love. And he will not leave you nor forsake you no matter what happens. And one day, if the storms of life overturn your boat and you drown in the sea, he won't leave your body in hell. He won't leave your body in the depths. He will bring you home to be with him. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.